Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a selection of the best bits from late lunch this second week in March. To begin, we hear from Alan Donlan, who after years of anxiety and depression finally discovered its cause and hasn't looked back since. My next guest has suffered with anxiety and depression right through his life. He had a number of breakdowns with regard to his mental health and it wasn't until he discovered what underpinned all this that life changed. He is an inspirational man with a wonderful story. I'm delighted to welcome Alan Donlan to Late Lunch. Alan, thank you very much, Sherry. Thank you for joining me. I want to step back with you just to context this for listeners. And as a young fella at home, I, I just saw you had a couple of dreams. Tell us about those dreams you had. Well, I suppose from we all have we all have dreams from a very young age. Um, I had two dreams. One was to be a healthcare assistant and to work in the tort world as well, to volunteer. The other one was to build a workshop. Um, so when I was 13, I decided to build my own workshop. I want to be dad as a dad. I want 240 blocks. I want sand and I want cement. And he looked at me, what? So I, he eventually came around to my way thinking, so I got me blocks of sand and I built my own shed when so I was 13. So you did it at 13 I years of age? It, yeah, yeah. And you did it yourself? You I built it yourself? Built it myself. I refinished the whole lot, put a window in it. So then I had plans for it. I d- decided to start manufacturing board lights and dog kilns. Okay. Um, which sold like hotcakes. I was selling them to the teachers in the school. I was selling them to the priest. I sent them to the local GP. They were coming from all over the northeast um, to buy me board houses and dog kennels. So you're an entrepreneur? Um, I suppose you could say that. Yes. Are all right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And this was from Navin, was it, where you live? Just from Kingscourt. Kingscourt, yeah. I beg your pardon. Yeah, Kingscourt would be my hometown. Okay, yeah. Kingscourt. You have links, of course. I, I know with Navin. But anyway, Kingscourt is where you live. So you're an entrepreneur. You build your own shed business and it's going well. And... No issues with mental health or physical health or anything like that at that stage? No, I wouldn't say so. I suppose, like, from a very young age, I would have been a kind of a nervous child, looking back at it now. Yeah. But um, I suppose back then it wasn't really picked up. You'd, you have no, no idea. You just carry on at that mm. age, don't you really? And, like, and how you know? did you get on at school? Like, did you... You know, school can be tough at times with other young fellas as well. Like, Well, I was in second year in school and then I started suffering from anxiety and depression. Um. So, what brought that on? What brought it on? Um, I had no idea. Um, I came really, really uncomfortable in school. Um, when I'd be asked to stand up and read and that, I would kind of freak out. I would take panic attacks. So, I think it took me a good nine months to actually approach um, the first principal in the school and have a chat with me. He kind of copped on something was wrong. 
So I didn't want to tell my parents because I didn't want to upset them. I didn't know what was going on myself. So he kindly had a chat with my parents and called down to the house and he told them, look, Alan's going through a really, really hard time. So then I was taken into hospital. At 15, I had my first breakdown, which was really, really tough because at that age, you don't understand what depression is. You don't understand what anxiety is. You don't know what's going on. Um, it was then decided that school was causing the problem. So take Alan out of school. So I left school and I got a job at Stonemason and I picked up the trade. So then when I was 19, um, I decided to move to Cork. So I lived in Cork for six years and then on to Germany. And, and what did you work at? Did you bring the stonemason craft? The stonemasonry, yeah, down in Cork. Um, I worked with a landscaping company Okay. Um, doing stonework. And were you happy there? Um, I was very happy in Cork, yeah. Um, people in Cork are absolutely amazing people. I really, really enjoyed it down there. Even though I still struggled then with anxiety and depression. Did you have any more breakdowns from 15? Uh, you know, and, and how long did that take? Just going back to 15, were you in hospital for long? How long did it take you to get over that? When I was 15, I, I'm i going to say I was probably in hospital for a year, year and a half on and off. I would be out for a few months. I'd be back in again. I really, really struggled. So this was a constant in your life at that time? It was a constant, absolutely. And, and, and being free, may I say, of the school, did you feel a weight lifted then? I did, yeah, absolutely. Like, it was amazing. Like, you know, it was, I'd say, a shock to the system as well. Like, where I might walk now. I suppose that's the way it was back then too, Jerry. Yes. Like, with youngsters, you know, they were taken out of school and you got a trade. And that's yeah. exactly what I did. Mm. You know? But funny, as you listen to this story, folks, you'll see why I'm sort of pressing that point in a little while when we hear how uh, this evolves. Um, so you go to Cork, you're very happy there. You still suffer anxiety and depression. No, no full breakdown of that at that stage, No. Um, I probably would off when I was 20 when my dad passed away Ah, a major event in your a life A major event, yeah yeah. Right. So that would have been hard for about another year I suppose mm. Depression came back and took up my life for a year, you know And, and during this time, I, uh, how are you treated? Are you on medication? What, 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 how do they help you or how were you helped? Um, I would have been on medication okay. Yeah, so I would have um, and then I would become fine again. I'd be taken off to medication again. So then carrying on from you went, Cork. You went to Germany? I went to Germany, yeah. I yep. um, lived in Germany for two years, where I worked with another landscaping company as well. Okay. So in 2002, I came back to Ireland, moved to Navan, where I got a job. Okay, so that's your Navan company. Link, yeah. That's <laughs> my Navan link, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I got a job at a landscaping company, so I did, as a crew supervisor. Um. To make a long story short, um, in 2016, I had taken my tenth breakdown. Tenth? Yeah. What yeah. age were you then? Um, I was 40. So between 15 when the first one happened and 40. And 40. On 10 occasions. Yeah, yeah. I would have suffered from anxiety probably on a daily basis. I would have suffered from depression um, probably about 80% of the time in a 25-year period. 80% of your life, you reckon, when you look back now in those years, Absolutely. was engulfed with this? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. How did you function? Like, how, how did you work? Um, work, I always, I was kind of brought up that if you want work, you will always get work. So I always kept my head down. So, like, work was a brilliant therapy for me. Like, I used to absolutely, and I don't like use the word hate, but I hated the weekends because I had time to think. 
So I would usually any overtime going that I would work to keep my mind occupied. So that's what I did for quite a lot of the time. So I asked the question to psychologists all over the years, what was causing my depression? So like, look, Alan, sometimes there is no answer, you know, um, and don't go looking for an answer either because you won't get one. So I asked the same question in 2016, what was causing my depression? And I was told the very same thing. Not to not to not to dig deeper into this, or, or not to look, or anything like that. No, not to look. No, it's very hard, um, Jerry. In <coughs> which um, mental health, when you suffer from anxiety and depression, to be listened to. That's what I have found over the years. Now things with the HSE have improved a lot, but with my experience, it was very hard for me to explain, and that was the problem too. Because like they would say to me, like, but you know what's wrong with you? So there's nothing wrong with you. You can explain exactly what's going on with you, you know. But so I suppose what they were trying to say is you have the pieces of jigsaw. I just needed someone to put them together for me, show me how to put the pieces together. So that's what I was trying to figure out. Do you know when someone says that to you? It must be the worst feeling in the world. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you, yeah, yeah. And if you kind of turned away as well, you know, and then struggle on again, you know. Um, what about other people, like in your work environment, your family and that? How did that relationship work? Dash, I suppose I was I was really, really good in hiding things. So I would have kept it from my family. Like, they would have seen me going through really hard times. But I don't think they understood. And the reason why I did it and understood, because I never told them. So they would only see this outline, but they wouldn't see what was going on, because I wouldn't tell them. I guess when you're in that stage too, like that, you don't want to annoy your family, you don't want to annoy your friends. So you kind of isolate yourself a little bit, if you get what I'm saying, mm. you know. Um, so, yeah. Were you ever really in the ultimate dark space? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, a good few times. Um, but... When I would be good, I always used to say to myself, you always have a choice. So when I would be in that dark place, that would ring a bell, you have a choice. Mm. And that would stop you at that stage. And that would stop me, yeah. And it's really, really hard. Like, the thing with depression as well, Jerry, is that how it works is, um, what way would I put it now? That every minute of the day can feel like an hour, if not... 24 hours so you can imagine going through your day in that period in one minute and that's what happens with people who suffer from depression it just builds up the pain is unbelievable like only person that goes through depression really knows the true pain of it it is um horrendous it really really is well you see i can see the other side where the time just goes by like that <laughs> you know what I mean yeah, and that, yeah. that's the opposite end of the continuum that you're describing there now yeah, you know yeah, yeah, I yeah. See, I, my oh my mm. um, but look you reached this point in 2016 where you asked the questions of the professionals they really don't think there's an answer but you're not satisfied you're not satisfied with this at all you say there has to be an answer to this let's head to a short break we're going to hear how Alan turned the corner and boy has he in a couple of moments 2016, Alan, and you asked this question of yourself. Can I get to the bottom of this? So how do you go about getting to the bottom of it? What did you do? Um, when I got out of hospital, I was in the hospital for six weeks at that stage, and I got out of hospital, um, I knew I had to do something different. And I asked myself a question, would it be possible for somebody 
to counselling house. I said, no, that's ridiculous. How would that work? And I thought about it for a good two weeks. And then I decided to go back to where I was happy. And that's when I was doing my workshop. So I thought, like, why don't I go back through my own silence for a full year? Forget about work. And that was really, really hard, Jerry, because I was never out of work in my life. So to take that on board to um, forget about work for a full year. And that's what I did. Um, through my own silence, I went back to the shed and I thought, right, if I listened to Alan when he was 13 and really listened to him, because I think I could really, really learn from him. If I feed him and read from him, I make sure that he gets sleep. And... I laugh at it now because if I told people back then what I was thinking, he is definitely mad. You know, they it's, would. But now you can laugh at it. Like, yes, you know? I understand. So that's what I did. Um, I decided, I heard about National Learning Network. Um, they were doing a fresh start course. And I think, wow, that's exactly what I want to achieve a fresh start. So I decided to do a fresh start course, which was a level three. Um, I was two weeks in the course and I start realising that my anxiety started building up again. But it was different. I was in control of it. I started asking myself questions like, why is it building up again? Then I realised that I couldn't read or write and that I had no self-confidence. And when I say that I discovered that I couldn't read or write, you see, for years I had buried it so far underneath the carpet that I totally forgot about it. So then I started, like, every week I would buy a book. My Compton started to grow. Um, I started volunteering as well with the National Council of the Blind in Avon, the charity shop. Um, I'd be on the tail there and I'd be listening to people coming in, listening to the conversations, people from all walks of life. And that was brilliant to get. I'd be always asking people, like, about depression and stuff like that to be talking about it, like, you know. So I built up a great knowledge about it. And even the books that I would buy as well would be about mental health and all that as well and self-help and all that. So I kind of put all this information together. Um, so as I said, yeah, I discovered that I couldn't read or write. And um, I started buying a book every week, as I said. And I eventually taught myself how to read. Um, and then I discovered that I actually had a gift in writing, even though I couldn't spell. My reading came to me, my way of words came to me. I could put sentences together, but I could not spell. Even today, like Jerry, I know this is Jerry in front of her, but yes, I can write like Billio. And how I do that is just take out my phone, sign in the words, and I actually love writing. So it's no longer an issue. It's no longer a problem. But the underlying problem was what? The underlying problem, the, I got my answer that nobody could give me. All the professionals over the years could not give me was my dyslexia was the cause of my anxiety and depression. I got my answer. And the best thing about it too, Jerry, was when I discovered that was I was doing something about it, which to this day I think that's pretty amazing, you know. Um, so then I decided to do an IT and office skills course with National Learning Network as well. Um, I applied to the LMETB for a level five in healthcare. I said, why not? I want to do what I want to do and I want to do it. Nothing's going to stop me. So while waiting for my level five in healthcare, i done IT and office skills with National Learning Network. So I did. And half a street out, I got a text message from LM- LMETB saying that I was accepted for level four in healthcare, a nine-week course. I thought, brilliant, because I knew like straight away that 
if I got into it and I passed it, I would get onto level five straight away. No, kind of when you get in the door, things keep moving for you. Yeah. Um, so I don't level four. So I did. And I also kept on my other course, IT and office skills, just to test myself to see have I the ability to do level five. So I'd done the two courses together. So on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I would do the IT and office skills course with National Learning Network. And then on Thursday and Friday, I would do level four in healthcare. And I was managing it. And then I said, right, OK, 11, five, or level five is going to start now in a few weeks' time. I started to freak away. Am I going to be able to force? So I started level five in healthcare. I was three months in it, and I realised that I was still actually doing the other course. So was I able for level five? You know, um, I really enjoyed doing all the assignments and all that. So, yeah, so just there last month, I graduated as as a healthcare assistant. Fantastic, Um, fantastic story. It really is. Come back to the dyslexia, and when you reflect why I pointed to that a little earlier on and where you had to leave school early and it obviously was because you were dyslexic yeah. in your young teenage years and there was no help for you there. There was no help. And, and that underpinned your breakdown. It does because I suppose like I say people with dyslexia probably would tell you that you hide behind things. So you kind of keep away from paperwork. You keep your head down and that's exactly what I was doing. You know, if you had got the assistance and the diagnosis back then, and the all the help that is potentially there, look, you know, it might have been a different story. But then, as we were saying to me on the break, the story wouldn't be the story. Your story, it is today. Absolutely. Like um, the only thing that I would change um, over the years would be that I didn't listen to myself. Mm. You know, um, I think the most important gift that we all have is the gift of listening. And most important, listening to ourselves. That's really, really important. And I think I came really, really good in that and tuning into myself, tuning into my thoughts, you know? Yeah. Which, um, yeah, really, really has stood to me. And you're well and you've been well since. Um, My depression hasn't existed in four years. And I can tell you, I come back to you in 10 years' time, say my depression still does not exist. And you might say, like, are you really being realistic about that? And I can honestly say, yeah. Not because I've changed, because I changed my way of thinking. Yes. You know? And that's all that I changed. Now, we have to get this in because time will beat us now in a few moments. You want to mention um, an idea you have and you're looking for a drama group. Is this it? Yeah. Um, I'm looking for a drama group to push a play together about anxiety and depression. Uh, to help educate people about anxiety and depression. Um, I've come up with a name for it, but I just need a drama group. Um, and the name that I have come up with is Catch Me Before I Fall. I just think, Jerry, it'd be an absolutely brilliant way of educating people about anxiety and depression. One in six people in Ireland suffer from anxiety and depression. And I reckon it's much higher than that. I reckon it could be one in five, mm. you know. And it's really, really important that... I feel that I have to try because I don't want anyone going through what I went through, you know, so. So you have the idea, you have a concept in your mind about the way and you're just looking for people. They are professionals. They put on these things, you know, regularly. Absolutely. You're looking for a group to talk to. You just want to introduce this to a drama group. Absolutely. I think it would be absolutely 
Brilliant. Is there a drama group or somebody belong to a drama group listening to us this afternoon that might like to link up with this wonderful man? If you're out there and you're listening, pop us on your details here to 086-1800-658 by text or WhatsApp. Or you can call in now on 1850-715-958 and we'll put you together. What's the name of it again? Uh, Catch Me Before I Fall. I want the first ticket. Is that all right? Absolutely, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to meet you on Late Lunch this afternoon. Jerry, what an inspirational man you are, Alan Donlan. Thank you so much. Thank you. An inspiring story for anyone in a dark place at this time. Well done, Alan. Next up, Dennis McIntyre talks about the young men who didn't quite make the cut to become priests and subsequently struggled in life. Now, to have a Catholic priest in the family was once a badge of honour for Irish families, though diminished, I'm sure it still is for many today. But what of those who were being groomed, and I use that word in the proper sense, for the priesthood, and didn't make it for various reasons? How did they fare out? My next guest has written a thought-provoking wee book on the subject called Geza the Spoiled Priest. I'm delighted to welcome Dennis McIntyre to Late Lunch. Dennis, thank you for joining me. It's great to be here. It's great to have you with us. First of all, can I ask you this, having read the book, one thought is in my mind. Have you a particular reason or is there a driving force for you writing this book? Well, I suppose um, at the moment I'm, I'm sort of delving into social history in Ireland because I think a lot of our history uh, see, it tends to be seen as hard physical facts and that kind of thing. And that's good. And, and, and revolutionary times and that. But to me, real history is how the people live. It's social history. And I think a lot of that has to be told. And the subject matter of this particular book has got to do, as you just mentioned, the priesthood and that. And now, what could be more central to Irish society over the last hundred years than, you know, the church, the clergy and in a way, how priests were groomed. And this deals then with the ones who fell away and didn't make it. Yes. And the stigma attached to that. I was also a little angry. Now, I'm not, you know, bashing the church in any way because I'm a Catholic okay. and will remain one. But I am annoyed at the way the clergy developed the church. That There's nothing wrong with the church Jesus left us. He went around with a cloak and sandals. And I'm not lecturing anybody. But I think over the years... That aspect was lost. And the clergy I grew up with, by and large, were not a nice clergy. They were bullies and authoritarian and, you know, in a way ruined the church that, yeah. we, all, that we all love. Yeah, but uh, you know, and, and I know you say that, not all of them. And I want to say that yeah, again, you know, and there was a huge amount of good people and, in the church. And still and, are. And, and you do actually acknowledge it with the very last line in the book because you say, with apologies to all uh, the good I mean priests. sincerely, yes. And that is emphasised there at the end of the book. Um you the name of the the name of the character in this book Geza is is G A Y is that significant it in is. that name? It yeah. is. What happened to this poor and and he's a pathetic creature. He's he's a he's a person, the typical type of what we call priest dean or sagarth or spoiled priest, one who didn't make the priesthood for one reason or another. Many of them, uh, you know, left it behind for good reasons, became businessmen. Fine, some didn't, and this pathetic creature didn't. Now, I knew many of this type. It was like a stigma. In old Ireland, there were stigmas like suicide, mm. illegitimacy. This was another. And country Ireland in particular would be well aware of it. And they were all over. And when I grew up later, I went to university and college. I met people from all over the country who experienced the same. Now, you asked me about the name. In his particular case, uh, he had other problems. Yes. Or developed other problems. Because he was the type that was mollycuddled, if you like, groomed particularly by the mother, 
and, you know, got the best of everything, had the world at his feet until he was rejected by the seminary. By the church. But that now, name... He became, yes, I get into the name. Now, he, he became um, kind of isolated. He couldn't yes. mix properly. And certainly with the, the opposite sex. And it turned out that he had gay tendencies. Okay. And the, the Sa at the end of it is from the Sagar. So Gay Sa is his name. Okay, so gay, Sagat, I see. And yeah. it, it's sexual orientation in this book, of course, is a, a key part of it. When he uh, fails and doesn't make the church, let me come back to something you said there, and this jumped at me. You really point the finger at Irish mothers in particular. Through no fault of their own. The Irish mother, the priest, and, and the mothers did the job of the clergy in this sense. The Irish mothers, by and large, like us all before Don Homali, and that's something I'd like to talk about, came along with his Education Act, by and large were uneducated. And they had a job to rear a family. And the priest was their overlord, their one and only. There was no psychiatrist or anything else, and God knows they went through a hard life. But the confession box is where the priest ruled the mothers. She got her instructions nearly on a weekly basis. You go home, you say that rosary every night, you insist, you're the boss of the family, and, you know, you were the, the, the foot soldier of the church, if you like. And they took this seriously. And, let's face it, wonderful mothers, and did a great job, but maybe overzealous on the religious side. You know, what maybe, do you put that down to? Lack of education? Because you mentioned Donegal Mali there and the education. Is, is that the primary I, reason? I think it's... Well, well, education, yes, because we talk about revolution in this country in 1916 got us our, our, our physical freedom, if you like, eventually. But the real revolution came with Don Homali's Education Act because up to then, people weren't... They were afraid. They hadn't the education, they hadn't the words to stand up to the local priest or doctor or, or, or whatever. And that's when the explosion came. That, to me, and television changed this country forever. Because it opened us up. Yes. And it was like, it was like Northern Ireland. The British Party didn't act like this 20 years beforehand. And that threw up your John Humes and your, you know, the, the string of uh, civil rights leaders who, who forced change. Education forced to change, not them, if you like. So the women really were victims of circumstances. It was the time they lived in, the lack of education. You know, I can remember from my childhood, just to, to throw it into the mix, and I was thinking about this reading the book. Uh, these priests that arrived into school when I was maybe 9, 10, 11 years of age and they were on a recruitment mission for the church. Now, that wouldn't definitely happen today but, you know, recruiting children of that age are you saying in the book as well that was another strategy of the church but it was aided and abetted by the mother in the house it was and on top of what you say about visiting the schools you were groomed from earlier as an altar boy that was the first yes. step now take the likes of me I mean I had clergy around me since I, since baptism if you like you went through the, the primary school system the priest was the boss came in the manager all the rest of it secondary school Again, the priest was in charge there. I went to teacher training college under the Vincent Chines. Now, a great education, don't get me wrong, but they were still the bosses. And then I was 27 years in the classroom. And every management board, well, in fact, there was no management board early on. It was the priest all the time. So I'm in a fair position to comment on, on a cross-section of clergy. And they were good and bad. You know the but saying... The, uh, let just me to just finish on the, on the grooming, it started with old boy level. Yeah. And a story that a lot of people listening would, should be familiar with were the Stations of the Cross. And a small but very significant thing is, Stations of the Cross, sorry, the, the, the mass stages in the house, when, when, every, every uh, annually somebody in the parish had That's the mass right. in the house. Now, the altar boy was sent to eat with the priests. That was grooming, if ever there was grooming. I remember sitting down with the PP on one side of me and the curate on the other. 
and I was afraid of my life. I remember well, one particular occasion, they got a starter. I didn't. And there was a pot of, uh, a bowl of um, marmalade jam. And I saw them eating grapefruit and I said, I'd never seen grapefruit in my life. I said, should I be eating this? And I, I went for it like that a few times. But the point being anyway, you were with the clergy and you were going to be taught to do what they did. So it was, it was a slick, grooming system. They were on pedestals. They were regarded as gods. They were really. godlike. They were yeah, godlike. weren't they? They, and were. they knew it. Mm. And some of them used that to their, as we know now, to yeah. their total advantage. <coughs> they did, of course. Now, just to go back to mothers for one minute. Yeah. All the mothers weren't that innocent. There was, for a time, say in the early years of the church, after we got independent, the 30s, 40s, and 50s, there was a pride. There was a show off value in having, a, we often say, if you had a, a, a son in Manute and a bull in the field, you were made up. You know, you were, you were ahead of the rest of the posse. So, you know, others than mothers were, were quite devious in the sense that they might have their eye on, you know, a nice diocese. They might know some, somebody already in America or somewhere. And it was, if you got a priest educated and said to one of those, you had a milch cow for the rest of your life. You had no more family worries. So some of them were good chess players. But the sad part is some of the priests, they did force through the system, if you like. I mean, they were, the, you know, they were lost because they didn't want to be there. There were square pegs and round holes. And you imagine a young priest, 28, 9 years of age, arriving in a big parish house in the middle of the country. You know, he was lost. And, mm. And it's no other some of them turned to alcohol and, and, and gambling and, and, and indeed we know what came out in later, the yeah. sexually into things. Yeah. Now, we have to say, some, some, some that didn't make it in the church made it very well in civil society. You know, they became teachers, business people, etc. We know that. But your book concentrates on this character called Geza, who was being groomed by his mother as an altar boy in the church, getting the best. He was a member of a big family, but he, you could see he was being dealt with by kid gloves by the mother within the family unit. But look at he wasn't, Dennis, and uh, you obviously have a feeling this was the case. He wasn't academically up to this. He wasn't you know, going to make it. He wasn't going to make it. But the, 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 the other point about it is, though, what I'm getting at is how it ruined the whole family because the rest of the siblings felt left out, overlooked, unloved, and that happened regularly. And would they have felt the same way if somebody had gone the whole hog and taken the vows and become a priest? Or was it just in the case of somebody like this character uh, who fell short? I think they would have overlooked things if he actually became a priest. Right, uh, that would have know, s- smoothed have, over yeah. everything. But the failure was a different story. Failure was a different story. And, uh, you see, the, the family was stigmatised in the parish. Oh, your fellow was a failure. Especially if the priest next door or down the road. We made it the 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 Malachis or the Henrys or the yes. Jordan or whoever they yes. might be. Ah, that's a failure. You know, there's a failure there, and it was, it was a stigma, no question about it. And if the so-called failure, failed priest, did go ahead and become a teacher or a bishop, it wasn't too bad. But some of them resorted, as Gaysa did, to the boat to England, and turned out. And I've seen many cases like this. Turned out to be. You know, you know the way we sent many immigrants abroad, and let's face it, there was a drink problem with many of them. But mm. ended up nearly worse of the worst type of, of you know the drunken paddy and, and yes, and, and the way his life descended. Yet, yet he, he developed a jealous streak. He didn't. He always felt on top of his brothers because he got the treat brothers and sisters because he got the special treatment at home. And yet he didn't want any of them to be better than. Him, and particularly when it came to the home place, and eventually he kept enough sanity about him to wangle the 
the home place from the old from man. the from from the dad. You did mention there that this character in your book went to the UK as a navvy. He worked hard there, but he descended into a life of alcohol abuse, smoking, not looking after himself, and he had that difficulty with his sexual orientation as well. Very much so. Um, he was he was he was if you like groomed and 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 what I call manicured in such a way that he didn't even mix naturally with his brothers and sisters. He was sort of in a, in a, in a, a separate stratosphere. And when, 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 the, when the bubble burst and the priesthood dream was over, he was kind of lost. So he, he went to London or whatever and uh, fell into wayward ways, knowingly in, in many ways, because I knew a few of this type. And I met them in London because I worked summers in London myself and they were away from it all and yet they felt they were rejected or, or didn't get what they wanted. And some of them had an obsession of wearing black suits and so that comes out in, in, in the... Yes. And in, in drunken, you know, carefree moments, they thought they were clergy. Mm. And in reality then, when they see a priest, they were jealous of them. And in drunkenness they came out and, you know, they, they were mixed up, they were craved and... Mm. and it never knew how to handle. You see, they were sheltered, yeah. and never knew how to handle life on their own. And a relationship and, was, is, yeah, a, a relationship was simply out of the question mm. for many, for many. Mm. You know, they were kind of untouchable. You see what you say there. I can even see you're you're pulling from life experience here. You you you've known these people in your time. The other thing, this character was barred from home. Came home, of course, periodically, and you mentioned it just before the break. Yet for his failure and being put up on a pedestal and the life he was leading in uh, Britain, he manipulated his father to sign over the whole place at home, the farm and the the house and everything. You see, for all his faults, and there they had that little bit of education, maybe above the rest of the family, because he would have gone through secondary school, whereas the rest of them didn't. Mm. And a, a, a jealousy of Vidim grew up, okay, you kind of laugh at me because I didn't make the priesthood. But I'm going to have the last laugh and I'm going, to, I'm going to make sure none of you get into that home place. And he worked on the father and it was a common thing. But the father getting old, plenty of drink and all this kind of thing. Yes. And he just manipulated his way and, and, and more or less said, well, well, I'll straighten my ways and, you know, maybe I'll come back and I'll be a good Christian, all this kind of thing. And the father, oh, yeah, sure, I always knew there was good in you. Mm. That, that, that kind of line. And it worked. For many. Back to the um, to the mothers, and I know it was a badge. It really was a badge for families. I remembered me growing up. If there was a priest in the fold, it was regarded as something. Oh my, you have a priest. When can you put your finger on? You know the big families in the fifties and into the sixties. The church still dominated. People were subservient to them. What was the straw that broke the camel's back? Well, I think it it, it didn't happen instantly. I think it was the Donahoe Alley Act. No, I don't know. Now, I know I would never have gone to secondary school were it not for Don Homelli. For this reason, I was born, um, I would say, 12, 50 miles from the nearest secondary school. Now, the roads were Bohreens. So it wasn't a case I could afford it. It wasn't that much anyway, about a ten or a year. It wasn't, oh, but how to get to the school? And that's where his revolution came in. He put the buses on the road. And he educated a whole generation. I call myself the Don Homelli graduate. And slowly but surely, they became edu- people became educated, they became confident, they were able to face the world. Before that, I remember in our own village, the only influence from the outside world in our house 
was the Sunday press every Sunday. And, and it was funny because without going into politics, um, the people who voted for the fall bought the press and yes. voted for the Gale bought the Independent, and we walked home on different sides of the road. <laughs> but it was the only, and, and the, the only other influence would be the radio, and we only listened to the news maybe once a day. And then John and Mally that came, and we all went to secondary school. And Jesus, we learned so Shakespeare and all the other writers. And television came, and that opened up. And I remember De Valera had said at, at uh, the opening of Irish television, it can be a good or a bad thing. It can be very influential. And how right he was. And he was afraid of it, of course. And, and women became educated, and men. You, you do, as I said, you do in particular point at the Irish mother in, in this book. Women and men became educated, and times changed. And those influences coming in from the UK, especially on Irish television, and the whole rock and roll movement, liberation... The writing was on the wall, wasn't it? It was. And yet they couldn't, the clergy themselves couldn't see it. And, you know, for for bright people, and there were some obviously very wonderful clergymen and bishops and so on, but none of them, none of them saw this coming. But they actually opposed the Don Hamalli Act in 1967, first. Opposed it? They did, yeah. For, well, I would say for two reasons. Once they had a certain amount of secondary schools, which they themselves controlled. Now they were going to lose control. And the other thing is, if something as big as this was going to be announced, they should be announcing it, not not a minister. But O'Malley jumped the gun and he said, you know, to hell with all that he, we're going to have free education. And to me, that was the real revolution in Ireland. It took a generation for it to fully show itself. Because, uh, I mean, I would say you could count on your thumbs in my when I grew up, the number who would go to secondary school in any given year. Mm. Is, is today, I mentioned in the introduction, to have a priest in your family, they, well, it's a rarity, number one, when you see the way vocations have gone. Do you still think it's um, a matter of pride? Well, I think it is for the right reasons, but broader than that, and I'd like to broaden in the sense that it's great to see somebody who genuinely wants to be a priest, but, you know, it's a, it can be a... a a lonely life. And I would like to see it broadened and obviously allow priests to marry. Or for that matter, I'd have no problem with women priests. Once you'd have people there who want to be there and they're there for the right reasons. You know, not some cold, isolated figure in a big, long, black, Dracula-type uniform. I mean, OK, there's a certain dignity and certain dress in every profession, I suppose. But, mm. you know, have a warm church. You know. I can still see them kissing that uh, Dublin... <laughs> Priest ring, John Charles McQuaid, and uh, yes. kissing rings, oh my word, what yeah, yeah. different times. And I'm not saying not, not respectful. And another point to make is, we've lost the faith and lost the church. What's replaced it? That's a, a big discussion well, uh, for another day. It is, it is. And, uh, you know, it's all right throwing out the, the, yes. the, the baby on the bathwater, but you know, to have something solid to turn back on. Is it, <coughs> is it money? Is it what? I don't think anything like that. We'll, have music, pick, whatever. we'll pick it up another time. The book, where is it available? Well, we, we, small book publishers, independent book publishers will know when I say that it's very difficult to get a book distributed. So a lot of sales are now online. Mm. So if you want this book by Dennis McIntyre, uh, it's called Gaysa, the Spoiled Priest, and I have four other books as well. You can order from ourselves by email. I'll just call out this email. It's not that hard to remember. It's Dublin North Bay Tourism at gmail.com. That's Dublin North Bay Tourism at gmail.com. You can get it online on Amazon, um, eBay, or uh, the Manuscript Publishers.com bookshop. So Amazon would be the big one, I suppose, eBay, 
are direct from Dublin North Bay Tourism at gmail.com Dennis Thart provoking thank you for joining me on Late Lunch today it's my pleasure to be here interesting indeed a forgotten group of men Finally, one of my all-time favourites, the inimitable Patricia Scanlon, popped in for a chat about her new book and, as usual, more besides. Where does the time go? I'm sure my next guest is reflecting on that at this time. You see, it's 30 years since the book that launched the career of a wonderful lady was published. Yes, City Girl was the spark that ignited the flame that burns brightly and is Patricia Scanlon. And I'm delighted to say she's here with us in studio. Book number 21. It's called The Liberation of Bridget Dunn. And she's here to have a chat with me. You're so welcome. Oh, I'm delighted. The only awful tragic thing is we weren't able to hug each other. (laughs) I've missed my annual Jerry hug. (laughs) Margaret Madden's delighted. (laughs) Now, Madden, you keep your hands off him. (laughs) Listen, I didn't think this truly would happen, and I know there's cancellations all around, but it's great to have you with us on the show. Can I start by saying congratulations because the book, wow, you've done it again. But you know something? You've written about the social history of really women's liberation in Ireland through some wonderful characters and a story you see, and I hadn't realised I was going to do this at all when I was actually uh, planning my story. Um, what happened was, Jerry, I was down at the prayer over the graves from my parents uh, in Rosslare Harbour. And afterwards, we went down to St. Helens uh, Bay, where we used to um, have wonderful times as children, picnicking. You know, the freedom we had as children then. We left our, our aunt's house at nine o'clock in the morning and bring a picnic with us and they wouldn't see us until the ship was coming. We knew it was time to go home when we'd see the ferry coming across towards the Tusker. That was time for tea. But um, there's a beautiful old house um, on top of a cliff in St. Helens and it's called the House of the Four Winds. And... Um, it's the, the holiday home of the presentation nuns. And it was kind of always a, a magical sort of a place. And I remember cycling with my cousin once. My cousin was a pupil in the press and we had to bring a message over to the nuns. And it was really exciting going into the parlour and they gave us scones and milk. And um, there was just such a magical aura about that place. And I got to thinking, I was thinking about the nuns who'd passed through the doors there. And, you know, with all that's going on in the Catholic Church and and everything that's happened. And some of them feel so betrayed and rightly so. And I was thinking, you know, were there nuns there who had a true vocation? Were there nuns there who didn't have a vocation? But, you know, in those days to have a nun or a priest um, in the family. We were only talking about it on the show the other day. They didn't want to be there, but they were pushed into it. There was the nuns who went in with no dowry. And they, because in in the old days they had to have a dowry and if they didn't have a dowry, they ended up as uh, the domestic nuns. Uh, So there was, it was very hierarchical. And, And I thought, God, if I wrote about a nun in her 80s who was looking back on her life, but, you know, she also has a great niece who's living contemporary life and how they learn from each other. And, um, so Bridget, Bridget arrived, Reverend Mother Bridget. And then I was, found myself writing chapter four and I found uh, myself writing, will I make your stuffing, Mrs. O'Brien? You will not. I'll make my own stuffing. Thank you, said this snippy voice. And I said, God, who's she? She sounds like a bit of a wagon. And it was Imelda, uh, Bridget's sister. And Imelda muscled her way. She literally muscled her way into that book. Um, The two girls, Bridget and Imelda, lived in a farm on the west of Ireland. Uh, You know, and there was no money. 
And um, the only way off the farm, really, you had to get away as quick as you could, if you could. Otherwise, you know, you were a life, you were tied to drudgery and helping out on the farm, looking after the parents and all that went with it in the small villages in the West. And um, something happens to Bridget and she desperately wants to get away. And the nuns, some French nuns were giving her a treat and it suddenly dawns on her, I'll become a nun. And um, I'll go out on the missions. How exciting would that be? And Imelda knew she didn't have a vocation. And Imelda was really bitter because Bridget got her chance to escape. And Imelda was left to look after the family, the ageing parents, you know, uh, rare family of her own. She married somebody that she was very fond of, but didn't love. But it was an escape route. Um, to have a house of her own. But she didn't realise that this was another entrapment in one way. And um, her best friend, Teresa, uh, moves up to Dublin. And um, Teresa becomes part of the Women's Lib movement. And um, Imelda goes up to visit her every so often and she loves her trips to Dublin. And and her husband's very good. He allows them because he knows, he knows his wife well. And um, so anyway, the the... Um, contraceptive train uh, thing. I laughed at that. Yeah, I could see Nell McCafferty still. Do you remember it? Myself and my mother were so yes. We were saying yes. (laughs) It was the first time that women started to feel empowered, though, because when you looked at Jerry, the way women were treated, awful. You know, I mean, my mother had to go and be cleansed after having a baby. Churched. Churched, yeah, because they were deemed, it was, it, 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 they were unclean. Imagine, yeah. um, we had to wear our mantillas and my mother's day, when she was growing up, the men were at one side of the church, the women were on the other, very like the Taliban. Um, you had to give up work? Yeah, I had to give up, I, I had to sign a thing for the marriage bar when I was in the corporation. And Teresa, my character, says she was sleepwalking through her disempowerment until she realised she had to get her husband to sign her uh, library ticket. You had to get um, a house on holder yeah. and mostly it was men. And I mean, I remember my father determined to get my mother's name on the deeds of the house. And that was rare then. Um, so it's kind of this social. This is the background. This is the yes, tapestry of their lives. That I, you weave. Yes. And do you know, when you were talking there, she came into my head. I could actually see that character coming from somewhere into your mind. Is that the way yeah, it happens? Yeah, she, I, I had no idea. I was going to do Bridget, um, her niece, um, Mar- uh, Keelan, um, and her great niece, Mary Claire. And then this woman, Bridget, just muscles her way. It was, <laughs> but it was great. She used to make me laugh. Bridget is a, she's, she's, you know, snippy and snarky because she has her secret heartaches that nobody knows about. She was the stoic one in the family that had to take on the burdens of family. And she felt Bridget was, had escaped scot-free. But Bridget was actually very envious of Imelda having the husband, yes. the house, the children, the sex life. Um, and all that went with being married. And so they each envied each other and they and they could have been friends all along. You know, that was the tragedy of it. But there is a reconciliation at the end. But yeah, like, I mean, I remember Imelda's going to um, Scotland with, with the other three and she's pretending she's a nonchalant traveller, but she's very nervous because it's a propeller plane. And um, I don't blame her. You know, the way that, yeah, well, I was on a propeller plane and once uh, from Galway to Dublin and the propeller, one of the engines cut out. But I'll tell you that another time. But anyway, um, so, you know, older people, mm. you know, they like to tell you about their medical history. 
my dad used to love to tell you about his medical history, God rest him. And uh, so Imelda goes in through the security thing and it beeps. And, um, oh, she said, it's my hip. Now, it was a complicated one and she starts and your woman hasn't time for it. And she says, just put your foot there, please. Step up on that. And Imelda's so annoyed. And she just says, what am I, a gymnast? I didn't know where that came from. I made myself laugh when I was writing it. Um, she was a great surprise to me and I hope she's a great surprise to the readers. Ah, oh, listen, those two characters you mentioned there, Bridget and Imelda, they do, they are the big characters in but the book. But they're real. They are. Yeah. They, they are so real. It is unbelievable. It really is. Um, <laughs> you know, a light bulb has gone on in my head here today. That's never happened before as I see you describe the way this happens, you know. And uh, it's, it's the secret. It's your secret. It's the w- it's what you have. But you see, some people, I'm very, well, some people plan their books and yeah. that's the way they work. Yeah. Each chapter is planned out you meticulously. Don't. Once I remember I was asked to do a synopsis. So I, I was saying, right, OK. So I had this vague vision in my head. So I wrote a synopsis, which was completely different to what it turned out. I just feel like, you know, when an artist is painting, yeah. And they do a wash first. So I have a broad outline in my head. Yeah, I'd like to do this, this, this. And then you start filling in the details and then more details come. But I never know. I mean, Imelda, I didn't know who Imelda was when she arrived. And it's getting to know them. And it's going down a road you hadn't planned, but the book is taking you. And I think, I always think if it's a surprise to me, it'll be a surprise to my readers. <laughs> but, and it always works out fine in the end. <laughs> it absolutely does. The Liberation of Bridget Dunn is the name of the book. It's the new one uh, from Patricia. We're going to have a signed copy to give away in a moment. And here's the question. I did mention this a little earlier in the interview. It's 30 years since the first one was published. What was the name of the very first one? The big, big book of the time. It broke new ground. My God. Talk about liberation. It was part of the liberation of women in Ireland for sure. What was the name of the first book Patricia published 30 years ago? And it's still selling, would you believe, well today. By the way, just before we go to the break, with the current situation, we're going to come on to it after Mm -hmm. the break. You know, this book is available to be posted out on yes. yeah. Um I know that Easons and Dubray have online. Um Kenny's um uh, in Galway have online. Kenny's aren't even charging um it's free delivery. Okay. So don't be stuck for a book. And men don't be stuck for a book for Mother's Day. Don't forget Mother's Day is coming. <laughs> You'll make the woman in your life so happy. happy. And look at you all the make benefits. make yourself happy. Pat Kenny really oh, enjoyed yes. it. Oh, listen, you he will. Did. You will. There's a, oh, everybody's happy with There's this. There's eating, drinking, births, deaths, marriages, everything in it. <laughs> it's all in there. I have something here for you here. Take Gosh, that over there, will you? What is... Th- oh! Just have a look. Just oh, have a look. Oh, my... Oh, gosh, King Christmas... Oh my God, slow gin. Oh, Jerry, I adore you. Madden, I bet you never got this. Oh, oh. oh I'm, in, I'm, I'm in real trouble now. I'm in yeah, real well, trouble. Yeah, she's, she's messaging in. Madden, I'm going to jump over the desk and kiss him. <laughs> I saw You're somewhere. So I did see me. somewhere, and it's months ago. I saw how you loved a little tipple of gin, <laughs> yeah. and that's from the Stoke Gin, a lovely a little distillery we have here just outside Monaster Boys, Is right it a for you. Gorgeous bottle. And do you like the King Chris? I Crisps? love King Chris. 
cyclist. I gave them up for Lent. Is this? A, could I have a dispensation? Paddy's today? Day. Paddy's Day. Oh yes, Paddy's Day. So yeah. so Tuesday. Yeah, all my right. Dispensation. Gin and Chris. Away. I'm away on a hack. <laughs> anyway, just for you <laughs> on your you, little Jerry. visit to us, I want to come on to the current situation in in life in in this country and in the world. And a lovely lovely piece with you in the Times last uh, Saturday. Life lessons, Patricia Scanlon. And in it, you know, they asked you about the biggest challenge you faced in your life. And you did. We talked about this before uh, the endometriosis that you you suffered from. What about this challenge facing everybody? What have you to say about it? Well, it's, it is a huge challenge and I mean, it's affecting everybody. We're all in the same boat and people are terribly worried about their finances. Um, I know my teenage nieces are really worried about getting the virus, about their exams at school. They're very, very frightened of it. And I think, you know, and in myself, you couldn't have a worse time to bring a book out. I had an accident a, a while back and uh, I tore my rotator cuff. I'm a year late with my book. You don't get paid when you don't deliver. You don't get paid if your book's not in the shop. Now the book is in the shop and there's nobody in the shops. I could be panicking my sleep, but I just said, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not giving in to this negativity. We have to take positives out of it to do our absolute best. And, you know, there's, people are going to get time to uh, to spend time with their family, um, to be able to talk to them and maybe just have a little relaxing time that you don't have to go commuting, you don't have to go into school. You're stuck together. Make the most of it. Try and kind of enjoy each other's company because um, it's very precious. Family is very precious and we're learning that. And also I think the wonderful thing is that communities are um, gathering together to help the older isolated person. There's lovely things on Twitter about, you know, um, helping out people who need shopping, uh, older people who need things done for them. Um, You know, you see people panic buying and grabbing everything. And I was thinking of the old pensioners, you know, that have a certain amount of money. They can't afford to go panic buying. And then they go to the shops for their little bits and pieces and they're out of them. And that's tragic. And, um, you know, we just need to kind of calm down a little bit and try and Try and just make the most of it. Try and be as positive as we can. And I think there's blessings will come out of it because blessings comes out of dark days. And I know that very well, because if I hadn't have had the endometriosis and I mean, I, I took my aunt's Valium. I was in, I was so desperate after 10 years of it that I felt I couldn't go on. Um, and I used to steal my aunt's Valium. And I would say to myself, you can take if you can't do hack it anymore, you can take these and just end it. And um, having that little stash of Valium actually kept me going. But that's how low it brought me. But now when I look back, if I hadn't have endometriosis gifted me with my writing career, because if I hadn't have had the gift of the endometriosis, I would never have written a book. I wrote City Girl to try and secure myself financially so that I'd have a roof over my head if I ever lost my job. Um, If I hadn't had endometriosis when I was in bed for so, you know, so long, um, I used to be able to write in bed. I would have hot water bottle on my stomach. And um, I wrote City Girl because of endometriosis. So out of a dark, dark time in my life, um, that great blessing of my writing career came. So I know we're on our knees now, but when we look back, there will be blessings um, for us out of this. And I think it'll bring us closer as communities. Um, I think it won't be all about the material stuff anymore. And I think we'll cherish our older people. We'll cherish each other. 
Um, so let's try and think of it. That's the way I'm looking at it anyway. No, you're so right. And I, I want to say, I say here, here to everything you said there, because I was in my local butchers yesterday and they had a very busy day yesterday. But the boys reassured me, listen, tell everybody, come in again in the morning and yes. we're ready to go again. Yeah. The same in the stores. This thing, I, I've mentioned it several times in the last few days. Please, please calm down. The supply chain is in place. We were getting ready for Brexit anyway. Exactly. And now this crisis has taken over, but we're ready yeah. and the supply chain is ready. There was enough, more than enough for everybody to go round. Yeah, there and really just is. mind our old people. Yes. You know. Keep an eye. This is a very important thing. I was laughing at one of the sayings back to the Times for a minute. Tell them what your mammy used to say. Love many, trust few. Always paddle your own canoe. <laughs> she was a great mother and a wise mother. <laughs> that was a real old, yeah. Love many, I trust few. I loved it. I, I loved it. And like you talk about, you know, like look at what's happening in the world economy at the minute. It's not billions, it's trillions. And you know, the bank shares. So we can go back to ah, 2008. Sure, listen, didn't I lose my pension in the bank shares? And here I still am. With a smile on my I face. I lost me short myself, yeah. and to be honest with you, what can here you do? we are. What, what can, you, can do? you do? Nothing. Get on As my it. father, God rest him, would say, and he said it the last week before he died and his specialist came into him and he said, Patrick, how are you feeling? And Daddy said, I'm above ground. Mm. Now, he died a week later, yes. but still, yes. life was precious. And he had that hope right till yeah. the end there life as well. life is precious. Mm. And it's, not, you know, go out and sit in your garden and look at... Today, just before I came, I was looking at my garden window, the, the kitchen window, and there was um, a bird having a bird, the blackbird was having a bath. And she was as happy as Larry, just splashing away. And just for a minute or two, I looked at her and was peaceful and get out and find peace in nature. Because you see, this is a lesson. There are learnings and there are lessons. No matter how smart we become as mankind and the technologies we've introduced and the world is a better place in general and we know there are people suffering terribly still, but we can't control that other thing. No, it's out of our control. And we just have to take our blessings where we find them. And I think people should reconnect with nature because it's a very peaceful thing to do just to sit out and look at the the leaves are budding now, the, the um, uh, cherry blossoms are coming out. Just little things like that because we don't even see them because we're so busy. Yes. But now we're going to have time to just kind of chill and relax yes. and, and, you know, talk to our families. And the light is coming. The days are getting longer. Exactly. This is stretch in the evenings. Oh, <laughs> a great stretch. Great. I will say yeah. in that one. I love it at this time of the year. Tell me this. Something I, I may not have raised with you before. Are you a twin? I am a twin. I have a twin brother. Um, we don't really look alike. Um, he bought me my first typewriter. It was a little silver reed portable. And it used to have, remember the, the um, black and white? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to do. Bing. I used to be sitting at home, uh, you know, when we were all at home together. And my four brothers were great musicians. And they'd be down at one end of the big long kitchen table play, having a session banjos, mandolins, everything going. I'd be up at the other end, clickety-clacking on my little bing, bing typewriter. And um, yeah, I wrote City Girl on that little portable. And it was so funny. Um, somebody asked me, had I a copy of the letter I sent in to Poolbeg um, saying to Philip McDermott, you know, the way you're always supposed to catch their attention. Pitch it. Exactly. And I said, uh, dear Mr McDermott, um, if you want to become a millionaire, you will be if you publish my novel City Girl. And somebody asked me, had I a copy of it? This was written in 1989. You know, I didn't have a photocopier in the house. Um, You know, and it wasn't in a computer and it wasn't on a disc and it wasn't on a file. It was my little portable ding, ding, ding. 
Um, that was a great How little prophetic but. you were when you talk about millions. Look at the millions of books you've sold around this world. Know, great, and you know, when you think about City Girl, the ground that broke at the time and the issues it ranged. And really, let me say to you, 30 years on, you've come around. Nearly you know, full circle. Yes, yes that's what I love about Bridget and Imelda. You know, yeah. in this new book as well. But you know, I would like to thank all my loyal readers. I mean, they're my blessing. There's so many of you out there and you're so good to me and you're so good for buying the book and supporting me on Facebook and everything. And I haven't enough to say thank you uh, and enough words because if it wasn't for the readers, where would we be? Of course. And it's the same with our listeners here on the on the radio mm. station to people who read newspapers, etc. And, and authors so especially. So if you're self-isolating, mm. get your books online. They'll <laughs> yeah. come in the, a nice surprise for you <laughs> in the post. And... Uh, that, but also it'll help the bookshops, especially the independent yes. bookshops, yes. you know, who are struggling. Well, mm. all the bookshops, mm. you know, so because um, they're a great old trade, the book trade. You'd sell sand. Would I sell sand to You'd the sell Arabs? sand. I oh, would. I'm just sitting here thinking, <laughs> there's no doubt about that. You'll never, you'll never be stuck. And go on, men. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm sure we'll see you soon again because I take it you're working away. Yes. And uh, OK, let's we, we, we just skip over that very quickly. Okay, but I do have a, um, a book in my head. Of course yes. she has. And loads of people want the sequel to City Girl. And others, you know, they yes. want, you know, I can't call it City Granny because those, those girls are going to be in their 50s, 60s now. <laughs> but I would like to know what's happened to them. Well, no, hold on a minute. So, actually, there look, really they want is. sequels to everything. Mirror, yes. mirror, promise, the promise. I'll be right until I'm 90. Uh, of course you will. Yeah. A- and beyond as well. Take us up at that stuff from Liz oh, and you will be right until you're 90, you. I promise you. Not oh, at all. Thank you. I'll be old... taking a photograph of that, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just before she goes, reminding you again, and you can order it from the booksellers. It's called The Liberation of Bridget Dunn. It's Patricia Scanlon's new one. And, you know, it is... Uh, Honestly, a social history of oh, this country and, and the the lot of women way back and right up to today to the Eighth Amendment. It's all in there. Congratulations on another Surefire winner. Thank you so much Can for I joining us say, on the show. This is always my highlight of my book trip. Ah, I thanks. mean that. No, but you know, I mean that. Yeah. And keep your hands off, Madden. <laughs> You're <a star. laughs> Patricia Scanlon. Until the next thanks, time. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Enjoy the gin and king crisps, Patricia. That's it for now, but do check out our weekly featured interviews and join us each afternoon for your late lunch from 1.30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.